vengeance. I am the knight. I am... Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you tonight? I'm doing just fine. Just fine. Two things I want to discuss here. Uh, show business and Star Trek business. Which one do you want to get to first? Uh, let's start with show business. Okay. Uh, you've been checking Twitter? Occasionally, sure. Uh, have you checked Twitter within like the last, uh, let's say, 24 hours? Not more than a most cursory glance. Okay, so I've I've got some news for you. Our friend, Bobby Secundus, Bobby Two Bucks, we kind of hashed out an episode over Twitter. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh so it's gonna be uh sort of Asriel, the Dan Waters miniseries. Sure. And something from Tinian's detective. Yes, okay, the Azrael arc there, the, the sort of the Order of Saint Dumas arc. And white eye two. Oh, <laughs> yay! <laughs> uh, as uh, as Rob so succinctly put, it might be the widest spread uh, on an episode between two stories between uh, Sword of Azrael and White Knight Two. I'm so excited. He's so fucking smart, um, and he's gonna make this discussion better. Um, and like I told him on Twitter, I love spreading uh, just the abject misery that is White Knight onto other people. Read this thing and suffer as I suffered. So uh, that's going to be good. Yeah, I'll figure out what those uh, tiny and that the, the Duma arc was. It's easy enough to, to find. It actually fits. I've been putting together some more episode themes around allies, and this is a a, a good Azrael themed episode. Okay, so so there we go. Next, so there's some <laughs> Star Trek. Uh, you've had all of 24 hours, give or take. Of course, I don't know your status with Picard. Uh, have you seen the first two seasons? Have you seen this third episode or the first episode of season three? Seen season one. Uh huh. We plan on binging season two within the next few weeks so we can have some of season three built up so we can sort of go right into it. Because we we got our Paramount Plus login a few months ago. So we ah. were like, we could binge it all early and then watch it week by week. Or we can wait a little while and then be able to just treat it as like one big marathon of seasons two and three. It has some interesting choices that definitely take some characters in some different places. Not a whole lot in this first episode, but I'm excited to see where we go. Season one, aside from one or two really cringy moments. Uh, cringy? Uh, some, you know, Patrick Stewart deciding that that scenery looked really delicious and needed to be chewed to a degree that I have... I Never I, seen the man chew. I will I will stand by this. Stardust City Rag, that episode you're talking about, is one of the worst episodes of not just any Trek series, but just anything. Patrick Stewart was having a great time, but 
that really made me question Jonathan Frakes' ability to direct. Somebody should have pulled him back, should have reined that in. But yeah, that, that stands out in my mind as just something especially abysmal. I, I think Frakes has proven across various series that he's not a bad director. I think he might be a little intimidated by Stuart. I, well, who wouldn't be? Right. I think that might be the case. It's like he he might look at it and go, I think this is a bit much, but who am I to tell him? He probably knows better than I do, and this is going to look much better when we're watching it in post. And then it's like, oh, no. Eee, no, didn't. Eee, eee. But at least he had fun, right? Yeah. Patrick Stewart deserves to have fun. And this is a discussion that, as as we are recording a month out, I will have already had on WMQ. But we're getting ready to interview a writer who is writing one of the Star Wars comics right now. And we'll actually be writing Star Trek soon as well, interestingly. But he recently did a plot that involved a droid revolt. And it got me thinking that AI as villains has become, in the past five years or so, something that is really standard. I mean, we can even sort of circle this back to Batman. I mean, Brother I, that predates this trend. But Picard season one, Discovery season two, Lower Decks season three, Seth MacFarlane's The Orville seasons two and three. You're a monster, by the way, for including that. And the current run on Star Wars, the revelations one shot into the Han Solo and Chewbacca series, all are using AI as villain and i think that this is going to be a theme we see even more of as technology has outstripped human maybe not understanding but where society is because i think what we're seeing is a response to disinformation and social media and all the problems and it's of course being reflected in science fiction Absolutely. We have this inherent fear of, are we turning over our lives to these things that we have created? You don't have to go back that far into recent history where this is still a theme like Terminator 2. You know, that was the the rise of the machines. Uh, I guess that was the subtitle of Terminator 3. But we give control of our military to the machines and the machines decide to kill us. I mean, it's been a theme since the twilight zone i mean you can go back that far and see it but the fact that it has popped up in every star trek series practically i don't recall anything that really fit that in the first season of strange new worlds but still and now in the star wars comics it's like okay this is reaching a, a critical mass where you know in the same way that during the cold war the atomic panic was everywhere it feels like this fear of ai specifically but technology in general is reaching critical mass in the same way that zombies were a few years ago in horror as this sort of fear of any number of things whether it was disease or just just ennui of society taken into account as these sort of mindless hordes and thinking about the borg i mean that represents both technology and a loss of self, a loss of self to technology. 
when we talk about Brother I, we can talk about this. When we get to, to OMAC Project, th- there we go. I'm trying to think if there's any other robo-bat rogues. Not really. Brother I is the... the, the uh, uh, f- failsafe. Yes, okay, failsafe. Failsafe is, is Brand new. shiny new. Yes. But it's not like Batman has a Brainiac. I mean, when you're talking AI villains... Brainiac and Ultron are the gold standards, one yep. from each of the big two. I mean, the X-Men have all kinds of, I mean, that's sort of the thing we're seeing in the X-Men books right now is, again, wait, that's the other one. That's huge in the X-Books right now. The idea of technological evolution versus biological evolution. How did I not connect that? That's, wow. I, I just I just shocked myself with having missed something so bloody obvious. Fix it but, in post. Yeah, exactly. Uh no, no. I need everyone to know that I can be dumb. It's it's been a long week, and I'm just oh. Look, it's it's been a long three weeks. I I have still not left my desk, and I'm gonna be honest. I'm getting my pee bottles and my Gatorade bottles confused, and it's oh, it's been a it's been a struggle. But yeah, it it's it's let's let's get into it because it is time. This is episode 75C, and we are here to wrap up our coverage of Batman Eternal. This is Batman Eternal Part 3. This is Batman Eternal issues 35 to 52, and Batman Volume 2, number 28. The writers are Scott Snyder, James Tiny and the Fourth, Ray Fox, Tim Seeley, and Kyle Higgins. Pencils are by Fernando Blanco, Andrea Moody, Felix Ruiz, David Furno, Joe Quinones, Jed Doherty, David LaFuente, Ako, or ACO, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, Javi Fernandez, Alessandro Vidi, Christian Duce, Ronan Cluquet, Juan Ferreira, Alvaro Martinez Bueno, Eduardo Pansica, Robson Rocha, Tim Seeley, Ray Fox, and Dustin DeWin. Inks by Fernando Blanco, Andrea Moody, Felix Ruiz, Paolo Armentano, Joe Quinones, Goran Suzuka, Roger Robinson, Victor Olazaba, Scott Hanna, Ako or ACO, Javi Fernandez, Alessandro Vidi, Christian Duce, Ronan Cliquet, Juan Ferreira, Rule Fernandez, Julio Ferreira, Guillermo Ortega, Tim Seeley, Ray Fox, and Derek Friedolfs. Colors by Marcello. Maiolo, Julia Brusco, Dave McCaig, John Kalish, Kelsey Shannon, Lee Lawfridge, John Rauch, Romulo Fajardo Jr., Daniel Brown, Matt Miller, Juan Ferreira, Alan Pasquala, and Gabe Iltayeb. Letters by Steve Wands, Taylor Esposito, John J. Hill, June Chung, and Sal Cipriano. And edited by Mark Doyle, Chris Conroy, Dave Wilgosh, Katie Kubert, and Mike Martz. Cover dates are crap. <laughs> Forgot that Batman 28 does not fall into these date ranges, so it needs a separate published date. Leave it in, Matt. And I'll interject here to say what a masterful job. And two, uh, Batman 28 is just a fucking appendage anyway. It is, but there's no other place for it to be covered. So if we've got to cover everything, it's got to be covered somewhere. Cover dates are April of 2014 and February to June of 2015. The end is here. 
Batman has been stripped of most of his resources, and he and his allies have been run ragged. More foes are appearing, and appearing with new and upgraded tech. All of this leads to a night of fire and chaos in Gotham, where the true masterminds behind this whole year step out of the shadows. Yay, we're done! Yay! Uh, as always, a masterful summary. So yeah, this is this is the end. This is the finale. The the big old enchilada. And let me say, as someone who read this, I misremembered the end. I had been curious. I'd been waiting to see because you've said something. And I was like, I wasn't sure if you were misremembering or if what you said just wasn't exactly what was in your head about what happened so i i think i i fanficked my way into enjoying this book in my mind having read this and i i remember I, spoilers question mark i remember lincoln march being in this book but i remembered him as being another faint another distraction in my mind i wrote the ending as there was no conspiracy right so almost uh the clue master end of yeah just a bunch of bad shit happening all at once and that to me is a very powerful story that we seek conspiracies in our world we seek to have a world that could be evil could be malicious but at least there's order there's order in a conspiracy because there's a plan there's somehow that you can stop this there's someone who's answerable to it but to throw all of this at batman and then to say there was no plan to this these are all things that just organically rose from we'll say jim gordon's one very bad night and that to me is a really interesting story more court of owls stuff a little bit less interesting I mean, it's not entirely March's scheme. He played on the organic chaos. He didn't manipulate every piece on the board. He just let Cluemaster go to town and then gave the the villains some extra oomph. You're right. He is the puppet, a puppet master. But he didn't organize this whole thing. Most of this is chaos. Yeah, and yeah, I, I I certainly agree with that. And that tracks with all of sort of the details we learned throughout the series. Folks get these cards and they just, all right, I'll just, I'll do whatever I want. I'll look out for number one. But I wish there had been a way to tell that story, to have Lincoln or to not have Lincoln, I suppose. I don't really feel like he adds a whole lot to this, aside from giving a reason for spoiler to see Bruce Wayne, which is something we'll get into. And ugh. But yeah, again, as somebody who, who just thinks about conspiracies a lot, and brief aside, I, I do not believe in conspiracies. I, I think the psychology behind people who truly believe uh, in conspiracies is interesting sad but interesting what's the old quote by i think it's ben franklin uh three can keep a secret when two are dead that's the problem with conspiracies it's that if you've got enough people involved somebody is gonna say something 
because it's absolutely Lincoln doesn't serve much of a purpose other than giving Batman somebody to punch in the last issue because the last issue is especially having read it almost right on top of it very much feels like a rehash of the last part of Court of Owls of course since you're definitely trying to dance in that between those raindrops of referencing a very specific scene from Court of Owls yeah, Bruce calls him on it. I mean, he even says, you know, you've given me this tour of Gotham before. It ends slightly differently because that is a little more with Batman's self-reliance. And this is a little more about the community and about Gotham. The everyone is Batman moment. But the last issue of this felt very much like an anticlimax to me. Yeah. Reading it this time more so, I think, than even the first time. Well, as it's collected in trade, Batman 28 is truly the the anticlimax. Just just seeing that different point of view. But yeah, it's it's uplifting. It's it's heartwarming. You know, we've talked in the show before about, you know, Scott Snyder kind of writing his his fears. This is sort of writing his optimism, his hope. Again, it's not a, it's not a bad note to end the story on. No, but after all of this, I agree. I like the, the clue master moment. And I like the little bit at the end where he's got the gun to Bruce's head. And it's like, your parents were killed by a nobody too, with a gun kind of appropriate. Wish I, I wish I could say I planned it out, but I didn't. If Bruce had just been able to rise up then without Lincoln. And then the final issue was Gordon rallying the troops and Bruce having to just be there unable to move because of the beating he's taken and watch the city come together. I think that could have been more interesting than having to sort of shoehorn in this recycled Lincoln March fight. Yeah. But Batman as beaten as he is with the bat symbol carved into his chest still has time to improvise a cowl. Yes, he does because he's Batman. And, and then I guess whenever somebody else learns he's Batman, especially a guy like Clue Master, you're like, oh, he's about to get killed. Yeah. And he's only recently come back from the dead, like in the past two months, because he he popped up alive again in Batgirls a few issues ago. But I haven't read the most recent issue, which just dropped a couple days ago. So I'm not 100 percent sure how much he remembers. Could be a zombie. He seems to be alive. And he's got the scar from where Lincoln slit his throat. Interesting choice. Okay. So there are fewer plots in this back half. Yes. And some of them just are frustrating. They appear to just take time. The Jason Bard stuff, for example, I don't give a damn about his character arc by the time we get to this like he's already shown himself to be cretinous who cares about what happened in detroit and about how he had a partner that was killed in his mind because of a vigilante and like just like ugh, i don't care he becomes such a milksop yep. in this he is that one moment where he shows some spine when he says to mayor haiti you got to sign this to let Gordon out or else. 
what the or else is there is not particularly much as the mayor has a helicopter with I'm sure bodyguards in it right there. Sign sign this paper or I will pee my pants. I mean, yes, he again shows some metal in the last couple issues, but only after Gordon is back and taking the burden off of so much of what he has to do. And Vicky Vale here is, oh boy, this is written badly for her because she's in this relationship with Bard and she's also writing a story about Bard and then she finds out bad stuff about Bard and then she's like, oh, well, I'm going to kill the story now. And then he pushes her to publish it and just bad, bad journalism ethics. I was going to say that that seemed... This is terrible, and you know you should never compare anyone to Lois Lane. But if Lois Lane was there when Clark, you know, started to break bad, she would just report it. She wouldn't sit there and try to come up with excuses or whatever. No, she would just do her thing, and it just shed puts Vicky in a very poor light. Yes, and Lois would report you know honestly my night with superman was you know presumably written in the first person and maybe didn't include all of the details but certainly gave a sense that you know there was some kind of personal relationship there what we get of gordon is awesome but we get so little of it Mm -hmm. i would have liked to see more of gordon in blackgate during the riot at the end, the him sitting there reading his book while the riot goes on with two or three unconscious guys at his feet is second only to that moment with Flash in year one as this is Jim Gordon being a badass. And we, uh, we didn't need a ton more of that, but a little bit more of it. Although after one particular bit in this these set of issues, I'm kind of glad they stayed out of Blackgate. Because, oh, there was one line that just struck me so poorly. It's like, you know, we we had 40-something issues without making one of these jokes. And now you had to go with the prison rape joke. Really? I'm not even so sure that it was a joke. Uh... No, not not joke, but playing it for laughs. Maybe we're thinking about two different spots, but I distinctly got the feeling that Leo slash Rex was serious about trading favors for sex. Oh, no! There, well, there's a line where uh, his informant, Pete the Skink, comes and gives him these manifests. And he says to him, don't worry, Rocky the Violator will no longer ah, visit you. It's like, yes. really? Yeah, yeah really... we didn't have to do that. No, that is in poor taste. And why did we need that line? Oh, no, I have little doubt. Listen, playing a lot about, about the sexual trade in prison is not in itself problematic. It's a fact of prison life. But having a guy whose nickname is Rocky the Violator, Jesus, that's not funny that's just dumb going back to gordon for a second though and this is this is dialogue from the riot scene as bullock and bard and sawyer are coming to get him uh he just hears people coming down the corridor son i know someone has you convinced that you can hurt me 
but I've shattered three wrists and four kneecaps in the last three hours. And I'm still not done with my book. Bullock. That actually been working? Gordon. Better than you'd expect, Harv. Friend told me something once about criminals. They're a cowardly lot. It's a great scene. The stuff that we loved in the first part of this just gets little bits and pieces in this part. I would have loved to see Selena solidifying her power. I think that would have been something that should have been more in this book as opposed to it going on in Catwoman parallel to this. Exactly. If I had to plot out this series again, if I had to do it again, I'd say, look, the supernatural stuff is tangential at best, right? It's cool. You get some good scenes, but it doesn't really tie into the larger story better. So what if we take the trial of Jim Gordon and we stretch it out over all three volumes? We have more court stuff. We have a longer coming to a resolution of that story uh, instead of keeping Gordon in jail because Bard is a bad guy for a while. Let's stretch that out and let's tell the longer story, like you said, of Catwoman coming to power in this book rather than putting that off to her ongoing. The discrete bits in this volume make it feel so staccato and so episodic and so much of it while interesting because it feeds into that Batman is looking for a conspiracy thing. It doesn't allow so much of the other stuff going on around him to blossom and it removes him from the prime action of Gotham. The issue with Raish is a complete aside. The two issues where he's off in the mountains with Riddler are a complete aside. The stuff with the Hatter, which just seems so odd. And it's one of the things where I feel like the seams show. Because I've read this twice now, and I feel like I have to go back and read it a third time closer to the second time I read it to figure out how all the stuff with the nanites that we learned at the beginning factor into the Hatter getting them later. Because it doesn't seem like there's much of a connection there. And Bluebird is also just all over the place in terms of a character, in terms of her being a sidekick and an ally. And is she an expert? Is she incompetent? Like, what? what is she? Like, we, we lament the fact that she's kind of forgotten after this, but it's like her story was never told decently to begin with. I want to go back, and we're going to be doing the episode where we see her first full appearance, not just the cameo in Court of Owls, but the stuff from Batman number 12. What I remember from there was that she was a genius electrical engineer, which is not the same as a hacker. And I I have to go back. I might be misremembering, but to be a hacker on par with Tim Drake or Barbara Gordon, that's supposed to be a really exclusive club. And we get spoiler with that level of competency, which is a new 52 characterization of that character. Stephanie was never genius level intellect pre new 52. 
and Harper as well just seems like they needed them to have those abilities to fit the story. Yes. Versus, especially with Stephanie, which is fine giving her this new set of skills, but it just, it threw me when I remember when first reading this, it was like, huh, I don't remember Steph. She initially screwed with her dad in her first appearance way back when, like spray painting clues on walls. Like she was not, and granted that was the mid nineties. So computers were not as de rigueur, but still making her a genius, which is, less where she was for a while there it doesn't seem like they're keeping her as super genius now that she is hanging out with babs and cassandra and batgirls it's like babs is the brain Cass is the fists and steph is the heart that's sort of the batgirls dynamic right now but at least through tinian's run on detective she remained tim's intellectual equal I feel like Bluebird could have had a really interesting niche as the practical hand when it came to gadgets. Yeah. She's the MacGyver of the Bat Clan. Because when you first see her, you know, she's in her basement. She's working in the with the electric company. She puts stuff together from refuse. That's a cool concept. And by making her another computer genius as well it it takes away what made her unique and especially as you deploy her to the field and she can you know repel and hand-to-hand combat and all this kind of stuff it did take away what what could have been special by the way just just to say it so this is as we said 53 issues total when you factor in 28 Uh, yeah i took 48 pages of notes so I, I probably should have highlighted more or, but there's, there's a lot and, oh boy, I wish this story could have been written in a time where continuity wasn't such a friggin' mess. I mean, you couldn't necessarily without at least inserting, say, a new character in Jason Bard's place because he was an established character. But so much of it gets weird because of the problems with continuity. And in some cases with writers who don't have a great handle on some of the things that happened in the past. I mean, there's one line that completely threw me. I'm I'm looking at the few things that I did highlight. And there's one thing that completely threw me out because it is such a major change to canon and it made me like oh that's that is not a change to make if you're intentionally making the change without following up on it somewhere and if it's not a change to canon an editor should have caught it well lay it on us matt when the bat family has split up each of them going after one of the newly empowered Arkham rogues. Babs is going after Joker's daughter. And Joker's daughter has gone to the fairgrounds that Killing Joke took place on. And Barbara says that this is where the Joker took me after uh, he shot me in the spine. 
That doesn't seem right now that I think about it. Yeah, she says that it's where she tried to he tried to try to drive my father insane. But she specifically said this is where he took me after he shot me in the spine, which is not what happens in Killing Joke, and it changes so much if Joker took both Barbara and Jim. Joker is not keeping her alive at the fairgrounds if he shoots her. No. Joker is not a doctor. No. And that tries to band-aid over one of the problems with killing Joke. Is that Barbara is such a non-entity to Joker that he shoots her and he just leaves her. Mm -hmm. And so theoretically by him taking her as well, it means that she matters to his plan. So I see why you'd want to do that if you were trying to rehabilitate some of what Killing Joke is. But doing it as a throwaway line was something that just jolted me out of the story. The fewer references to Killing Joke, the better. Note to editorial. We've reached a point where Barbara's character arc has pushed beyond Killing Joke and we can just let it be. We've got got the bard stuff we've sort of commented on i remain a fan of the batman alfred julia dynamic and it's something i wish we had gotten more of moving forward but julia pretty much again disappears she shows up in endgame she shows up in some of super heavy. And the next time you see her, she's serving as Batwoman's Alfred during the tiny and Marguerite Bennett Batwoman run. She's sort of her uh, woman in the chair. Hmm. And we haven't seen much of her or any of her since. I like that idea. I think Julia and Kate had a good dynamic and logically have a history as the daughters of military men who are in a man's world. I think that they have a great dynamic, but as Kate has faded into the background quite a bit since that ongoing, which is a shame because I don't, I don't know why Batwoman can't hold on to an ongoing. She's such a rich character. There's so much that should be done with Batwoman. One thing that I think would help Batwoman is if you get a woman to write her stories exclusively. Yeah. I mean, Marguerite Bennett took over on the back half of the run that started out with her and Tinian. But I just feel like, you know, in the first run, you had Rucka before when it was in Detective, then Hayden Blackman, and then Mark Andreco. But I just, I can't, that is a character that should be a marquee character. P.S. I have not gotten to read it yet, but as we are preparing for tomorrow's Bat Chat column, the cover of this month's uh, Batman Scooby-Doo Mysteries has Batwoman. And I know they won't do it, but after the revelation in the recent Scooby-Doo Mysteries that Velma is queer, come on, (laughs) Kate has to ask Velma out. I want that. It won't happen, but... I would freaking love the next Batman Scooby-Doo mystery miniseries should be just wacky romantic entanglements with Velma and Batwoman solving mysteries. How do you know it won't happen, Matt? You can't swear to that. It is too beautiful 
a, a concept to exist in this fallen world. Now, I, I will say, as again, we're thinking about that, uh, at least we'll have a queer Harley Quinn in the animated series universe, which is an interesting sort of exploration of that character in Adventures Continue uh, 1 and 2, which we'll also cover. Yes. Well, well, at the time that people are listening to this, we will ha- we have covered it. Yes. And this past month's issue of the Poison Ivy now ongoing was a beautiful Harley and Ivy issue. It, it got you. It, it, it went right for the heart. It, it was a good issue. Harley, one of the characters missing from Eternal. She was off in her own ongoing at this point, which was very removed from the bat books everyone not going or was she in suicide maybe she might have even just been in suicide squad at this point i have to go back and see when the pamiotti and connor run began but harley was one of the the major missing pieces but i guess you had joker's daughter Boo. and joker was obviously missing but that was because Six months into this year, Endgame started. So you knew the Joker couldn't show up because his return was a big deal in Endgame. I think there was one line of dialogue specifically that had something to do with Joker's daughter and a punch line. And Harvey. Harvey's the other one who doesn't pop up in here at all. But really, in the long run, by the end, every major... Rogue shows up except for Joker, Harley, and Two-Face. And boy, is Bane mischaracterized in this whole thing. He just feels like such a lug. Gets gets tricked by Ivy, shows up in a mech suit. Which is so out of character for Bane. I do not need your electronics. I do not need your prosthetics. Exactly. We have not covered Vengeance of Bane 2 yet, but one of the arcs, one of the things in Vengeance of Bane 2, one of the things that carries over through Bane's characterization through everything up through Flashpoint is when he beats Venom, he beats Venom. He stops being an addict and it becomes this almost point of pride that he is now this pinnacle of humanity without the need for enhancements so him which would tie into his one bad day better certainly yes so him showing up in this mech suit it felt like whichever writer came up with it was like i think it'd be really cool to have bane in a mech suit fighting luchadors yeah without any real character point to it what if we put jim gordon in a mech suit wouldn't that be awesome yeah, we're, we're, we've already been there. And the question, so they're shipping these various Arkham inmates who get busted out to Blackgate. I think they said Blackgate. It's like, but wait, Arkham is in Wayne Manor now. And that's, again, one of these things that gets referenced. And yes, it's in Arkham Manor. My cynicism on things like that, on the Catwoman thing, on Corrigan's Midnight Shift, is that's to sell books. Yep. If you, if you want to know the rest of the story, you have to read it in the other books, even though it's all here. And I really want to know, 
how is it that both Raish and Riddler figured out that Lincoln March was behind this thing? Because they both make like references to your other half or your dark mirror, which is not Clue Master. They, they, they would no. have reason to call Clue Master either of those things. They both obviously have figured out that it's Lincoln March, but how? They're just super smart, Matt. Smarter than Batman. The seams show a lot in this third chunk, especially with the art. There is one issue, and I, it's the Rachel Ghoul issue. So that's 46, where generally speaking, they had done a pretty good job of each issue at least only having one artist. Some of them had two, but it was like one drew the flashback, one drew the present. 46 has three pencilers, and the art shifts like mid-fight scene to fairly different styles. It's jarring. That was problematic for for this. We we got some really nice issues in here. Uh, I mean, there was a couple issues. One, I think one issue by Juan Ferreira, who is an artist who I love. Yes, I'm looking at that right now. That was the one that stuck out in my mind as, again, the style is totally different, but it looks good. That's 47. That's the the Hush issue. I love his stuff. He does some of Gotham After Midnight, the Corrigan Midnight Squad-ish uh, series. Gotham by Midnight, excuse me. Gotham by Midnight. But he draws uh, horror books mostly. He did uh, a book called Colder with Paul Tobin that is singularly creepy. Ooh. But, yeah, I've, uh, I've heard of that. But he he did the, the Hush flashback in 26, the origin of Hush. And he does a couple issues of the, the, the Rom V Catwoman as well in the Bat-verse. But I, I love that issue. I also was surprised because I did not remember that Andrea Moody, who at this point does, again, a lot of horror. Maniac of New York. That's a good book. Great book. Moody does a couple issues in here. And Moody is a, an artist who I thought would be a good fit for a bat book. So I was like, oh, well, I'd forgotten that, that he came in and did a couple issues of this series. None of the art is particularly bad. Having multiple artists in one issue is always a problem. And when it's not broken up in a way that each artist is doing a discrete section, it stinks of this script was in late. This is a weekly book. We need to get this issue done. So all hands on deck. Yeah. Push this baby out the door. And the creative team are human, just like anybody else. So you have to imagine this is the end of the project. They are very tired, very frazzled at this point. All of them have other projects going on. So, yeah, I could I could see why this would be the, the hardest to get out. You see that at the end of any of these weekly series, the end of 52 I mean, the question there is how much of that was writer fatigue and how much of that was Dan Didio just sort of deciding that he wanted to change stuff. Random aside, Dan Grote and I were at Fan Expo Philly, the big con here in Philly, 
and we were going for a different panel, but Didio was having a panel that had run long in this space. And he was saying that the writers of 52 gave him an ending and he didn't like it. So all he said was basically no and shut them in a room until they gave him a different ending. That's oh, that's 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 good. Yeah, that that's his that was his editing style on that one. That's but a good shows, way to win friends and influence people. Yeah, it's kind of a no wonder he has few people who speak well of his time at DC. Count I mean, Countdown was a disaster. Someday we'll cover Trinity, and I don't know how because we're not doing this again for Trinity. That was a that was a whole other thing. I do not have a fond memory of Trinity. Mostly because Trinity felt like it was just kind of there. Like this it wasn't... is not this is not Matt Wagner's tr- Trinity. No, 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 no. This was another another one of these fifty two issue weeklies called Trinity. The the middle chunk of which is in an alternate world where Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman didn't exist. So you've got a series based around the Trinity that, for more than twelve issues in the middle, doesn't feature any of the Trinity. Genius. Yeah, it, it was a thing. I like Killer Croc and his little Egyptian getup. It made me giggle every time. He's a good sport. He is. Croc's evolution into not an anti-hero necessarily, but into this protector of the downtrodden is something I like. I mean, you see it as early as some of the Grant and Brayfogle stuff, like a one-off here or there. But Croc is a character who's written so inconsistently. I kind of wish someone would just settle on, this is who Killer Croc needs to be, and we just go with it. You have to think that the best version of Croc is some kind of lawful neutral, right? He has got a code. It is maybe not your code. He will not hesitate to eat you if he gets in the way or if you get in the way, but he has a set of rules. Yeah. I I think that would be a fine crock. I think putting him as this defender of Gotham's unhoused and the, the forgotten is a great use of this character. Who's a guy who, yeah, he was a criminal, but he was a criminal because what other choice did he have? Mm. and now he's found a place and he's yeah he still steals but it's as a Jean Valjean stealing bread to feed his family sort of theft at this point not even the Selena sort of yeah I steal stuff and I give the proceeds to cat rescues and things no Selena steals because Selena likes to steal oh it's fun right Croc steals because there's no other way for him to get stuff because he's a big old crocodile man. How does Hush escape from his uh, little Hush cage? Lincoln lets him out. You see in that issue, the power goes out in the cave and you see a shadow behind Julia that's not in the cage. Lincoln snuck into the bat cave and sprung Hush for chaos. Seems like a good use of his time. What else was he doing? That was the real question. And again, the timeline on this whole series is wonky. Is it a year? Is it a couple of months? Gordon specifically is referenced as having spent a couple of months in Blackgate, but also he has to have had a trial at some point. 
and how this trial went so quickly. I mean, theoretically, his lawyer could have stalled things for months with character witness after character witness after character witness, correct? Or would that, would the court have eventually just been like, no, this isn't making any difference, counselor enough? Maybe in some kind of sentencing phase, right? You could present that kind of evidence, but it certainly doesn't speak to whether he fired the shot or not. What is up with Rex's face? Just a random question as I'm looking at a page. They never make that clear. My assumption is that those are scars, that he was shot. Those puckers are bullet wounds from exit and entry wounds from one side to the other. Because, you know, only some artists make that clear or a feature. And one in particular, they're just like terrible acne scars. Yeah, they've never made it clear. But I absolutely, I read that when we first see him shaved, it looked to me like he had been shot in the face and that those were the scars from that. And the professor, I mean, and again, the professor Milo stuff is weird because it seems like there Milo got this sort of dream of all of the stuff he needed to summon Blackfire and one of the one of the invitations how did blue master or lincoln have the magical knowledge to send that to him uh, don't know and it also felt like they were not coordinating he's like oh and also he's a teacher at gotham academy we had been appearing in the gotham academy book as the chemistry teacher long before he showed up or maybe not long before, but at a similar time, it's like, oh, crap, we're using him somewhere else. So we need to address that here. There's a bunch of lines throughout this that felt like we need to paper over glitches in the continuity. Because maybe we didn't plan this thing out as as well as we should have. Again, the, the timeline here is so weird because Damien hasn't come back from the dead. I'd have to look and see where, when we do Endgame, how much time lapse there is in between the end of this and the beginning of Endgame. Because theoretically, you've got to squeeze in all of the events of Damien's resurrection in between the end of this and Endgame. But not all of them, because the Batman, Rachel Ghoul, Nanda Parbat confrontation clearly happened before all of this despite that being during the arc of this series again the the new 52 continuity is just in general janky i will say going back and me remembering that lincoln was the big bad they do seed that in more than one place there are numerous references throughout again riddler you know, says this old Cohen about an echo, which is obviously a reference to Lincoln as the echo of Batman. Bruce, when he's thinking about who could be behind it, saying it, the corporate structure r- reminds him of the Court of Owls, but this isn't their style. Raish talking about Bruce's dark twin and the fact that 
Ivy's contact, the one who will eventually give all of the inmates all of this tech, initially calls for them to meet him at Willowwood, the failed home for children that Lincoln was at. So the evidence Ah. is all there. If you know that Lincoln is going to turn out to be the mastermind, it's like, oh, okay, there's all sorts of references here to things that make you obviously know that it's Talon or Owlman or whatever Lincoln is calling himself. And there, that's another anticlimax that, oh, the Court of Owls just grabs him and puts him in deep freeze. And we don't see how it happened. It's just sort of conveniently, he gets away and somehow the Owls grabbed him. Uh, Lincoln died on the way back to his home planet. And they spring him a few months later because he shows up in the Robin War crossover that takes place parallel to Super Heavy in We Are Robin and a couple of other books. We're going to have to do Batman and Robin Eternal soon because that is where follows up a few of these points and it's where we first see New 52 Azrael. So... We might want to do that before we do that episode with Rob, because that will inform some of that stuff later. But that's where we, and also introduces New 52, Cassandra Kane. But it's the story where we we see more of Bluebird's origin. And it's been a while since I read that one. It's only 26 issues, though. It's not, it's not a full year. Yeah, they figured out we don't want to do that again. It's got to be a crushing schedule even kind of hard on this, but it does not live up to the potential of that first half. No, it certainly does not. The hard thing in my mind is figuring out, okay, is this better than the second volume or not? And I struggle with that one because so many of the story beats here feel like they've been done better elsewhere, right? giving the the rogues gallery the opportunity to run roughshod over gotham like oh, that's been done before yeah i've already complained about the the bard story like that doesn't really go anywhere but you're absolutely right and nothing quite gets us back to that first volume i mean you mentioned it before but i love i love the end i don't know how to put it i don't love the ending because of all the stuff we said about the the lincoln march reveal but the Gordon stuff in the end and the the speech he gives, the use of the bat signals, the city coming together, all the other heroes coming out of the woodwork, Selena sending her soldiers out to help. But then in the end, also getting that little moment where Batman's like, it seems like all the businesses that you helped were basically robbed blind while you were helping them. All of that is really great character work. It reminds readers that Batman isn't the Punisher. No. And I think there's so much of that when Batman, we've said it before, when Batman is written poorly, you get this Punisher thing where he's this thing that people fear and only the worst elements of society idolize him. I'm here to make you hurt. Right. If you shine the Punisher symbol in the air, all you're going to get are a bunch of Blue Lives Matter and militia folk. Yep. The Batman symbol, for everything that he can be hard, 
he can be kind of a taskmaster to his his friends and his family and he can be terrifying to those who are on the wrong side he is there to protect he is there to inspire and gordon tonight we all need to be batman and the city steps up and there's heart to that the kid who saves steph from getting hit by a car barbara going into the collapsing building to save jason and then the heroic talon from the tiny and talon series sweeping in to help them the birds of prey showing up it's all really good moments and then all of them with gordon standing at the front confronting lincoln it's a great moment, but so much of the stuff around it is hollow. Mm. On a scale of zero to Gilda, the Lincoln March re- reveal is not Gilda. It no. is not. It's not terrible. It doesn't make you groan. It's just, you know, not as cool as it could be. Especially because Lincoln isn't all that interesting a character. He was just interesting enough to support the reveal at the end of Court of Owls. Because he was weaved, woven? Woven. So intrinsically into that story. And you knew he was going to come back. But having him pop up in the same story with Hush shows the, the similarities between him and Hush. Yes. And for all of the exposition... Towards the end of this, yes, you are an intelligent reader. I'm an intelligent reader. It's like, oh, Lincoln looks just enough like Bruce Wayne that Stephanie in the shadows could confuse him for Bruce Wayne. They never say that. For someone who hadn't been reading closely or didn't know who Lincoln March was, because there's nowhere that explains who this character is. Baffling. That bit with with Stephanie so convinced that she saw Bruce Wayne and therefore she could not trust the Bat family. That is a moment where the story really, really bogs down because we know as readers, Stephanie is confused. We don't know why she's confused. We don't know why she believes this, but we know she's wrong. We know that every action she takes under that belief is wrong. So it just gets a little tedious there. Again, if you did not know who Lincoln March was, because he is a fairly obscure character. Yes, he recently appeared in a big story, but he's not that big a character. That reveal is just befuddling, the Bruce Wayne reveal. Because the, there are other things you can think of. It's like, oh yeah, Hush masqueraded as Bruce Wayne for a, a long time. Maybe that was that. Maybe it's Clayface. There's shapeshifters all over Gotham. There were all kinds of things that that could have been in the Lincoln March one. I would have liked a little more to address that. I also, I think we commented on it at the, about the end of the previous section of this book, but Bruce losing his money goes nowhere. Where does it go? Nowhere. So in, uh, in reviewing Picard today, Mark and I were writing it up and I made the reference to that 
next generation episode where we establish a galactic speed limit and then it's forgotten like six episodes later. Sure. It seems like every time Bruce Wayne loses his fortune, it's maybe referenced and then it's eventually forgotten. At least in the stuff that we're getting now, it was referenced that he was still main, you know, he still owned all of his stock. He just can't be on the board and things. So he's getting kind of a stipend. So like, okay, he's not broke. He's rich. He's not wealthy. So that that's makes for an easier status quo than, oh, he's completely broke. Because if they had spent time with this particular status quo, it would have been a very challenging thing, which might not have been bad. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you can't write a science fiction Batman. Maybe you can't write a Batman who has facial ID technology and radio com links with everyone in the city and, and all of this stuff. Maybe it is just a guy and you know hockey pads with uh with his fists and his detective skills. But look, I would be happy just having year one stories told constantly because that's what I dig. I'm trying to see if I have any other big notes in here. I wish there'd been less time spent with some of the stuff. And yeah, and again, the the Professor Milo issue was a distraction. Mr. Bygone, a character that never appears anywhere outside this series, shows up. And I think you cut the supernatural stuff here goes nowhere. It's like, oh, Batwing's being haunted. Okay. Okay. And it feels like that might have been trying to set up Batwing in Gotham by Midnight, but I don't believe he ever shows up in Gotham by Midnight. Gotham by Midnight ends after 12 issues. It was not a series that had any real legs, and that's, I mean, no fault of its own. It's a cool concept. Yeah. And I mean, and Fox did his, his best with it. It was a neat book, but it, it just, it didn't last. I mean, it lasted longer than Arkham Manor did. That went six, maybe seven. I feel like you could have had better ways to treat Batwing than sort of putting him into this weird supernatural plot that it was like, we don't know which member of the Bat family this would work with. So Batwing. Yeah. I don't remember if he had his own, if he still has ongoing at this point. I think it might've still been running. Yeah. I don't think I have anything else particularly. Well, that means then it's time to put Batman Eternal Volume 3 on the big board. All right. So the, the list has not changed much over the past three episodes because we've only added one book an episode. Uh, but still remaining at number one is Batman Year One, the post-crisis origin of Batman. Down at number 50 is The Vengeance of Bane, the origin of Bane. Coming in at a sexy 69, it's Batman and Robin, numbers one to three. Down at 100 is the post-crisis origin of Jason Todd. Down at 150 is the all-ages graphic novel Batman Overdrive. Down at 200 is Scarecrow, Master of Fear, the annual where Scarecrow kills his dean. Hey, hey, we all got to work out our problems one way or another. And down at the bottom is... White Knight at 224. Boo. 
so right now, part one is at 46 and part two is at 97. I think this does fall in between. I think that there are higher highs in here than there are in part two. Part two is just basically a 12-issue hush story. Yeah, there is much less hush in part three. In still, much- still an unacceptable amount of hush, but less hush. The, the second part is hush and the supernatural stuff, which were two of the least engaging parts of this book. And what Jason Bard you get there is the beginning of the character's decline into something far less interesting. I think this the highs of this book, some of the Selena stuff, that ending, some of the rapport amongst the Bat family. I, I, these guys get the, the banter between Jason and Tim and Babs really well. And I like a lot of that. I like the Julia and Alfred and Bruce stuff. I like that we get more Alfred in this than we did in volume two. And by the way, the, the satisfying bit of Alfred beating the shit out of Hush Two thumbs up there. Yeah, way, way up. Uh, so let's see. If if Gang War is at 46 and Hush War is at 97, um, you reckon it's it's closer to Hush War, right? Yes. It's probably in the somewhere in the 80s, 70s, 80s. Okay. It is not better than 75, Nightfall Part 2. A story again with a fallen Gotham. I would I would agree with that. That puts us between 75 and 97. Yes. I don't think I'd put it above All-Star Batman at 79. No. Actually, I think this might fall somewhere in the upper 90s. Uh, the lower digit 90s. So we're getting very close to Hush War. Yeah. I would put it above Brave and the Bold number 20 at 89. Okay. Yeah, I was looking right around there. Because above that, you have Batman the Spirit, which is, I think we've said before, probably the the highest trifle on this list because of the Darwin Cook art. That, that, That gains like 15 spots because it's so friggin' pretty. Because it is just a, a singular trifle. Uh, the second highest trifle. The highest trifle being 77, where were you the night Batman was killed, which is just a fun, wacky trifle. This is not a trifle. Eternal Part 3. It does say something very important about Batman. It just is lost in so much storm and drag. And, you like and, it at 89, though? I think I do. I think I like it at 89. Thus ends our 75th episode. Yeah, and it's it so... I actually think that that would probably put the overall... If Batman Eternal was put in as one book, probably somewhere in the 70s. I'm about to do something... Some complete nonsense arithmetic to figure you're something gonna, out. You're going to average them? I am indeed. 98 plus 89 plus 46 divided by three. Yep. 78. The average is 78, meaning it was is either right above or below a lonely place of dying. 
below a lonely place of dying. So it would the average of this book is in between a lonely place of dying and All Star Batman one to five. Uh, isn't that a lonely place of living? Oh, you're right. A lonely place of living. Excuse me. A lonely place of dying is higher. Yeah, still in between a lonely place of living and my own worst enemy. Uh, and for a Snyder project, I mean, that feels about right. Yeah. Do we have final thoughts on this as as a whole? Probably would have been better as 26. Would have been better with more consistency among the art. Not a bad story overall. No, it's a good story overall. The concept of it is very good. Very few stories deserve 52 issues. A truer statement has never been spoken. And listen, none of the writers involved in this book are bad. Some of them are very good. 52, the original 52 worked because you had four of the best writers at DC bar none three and Jeff Johns (laughs) (laughs) you had Johns but you had Rucka Morrison and Wade with a little assist here and there from Keith Giffen who's uh you know, an old hand. You had a clear vision. You had clear division of labor. And it felt like even when it kind of meandered in places, they knew the story they were trying to tell in certain respects. And also because it mainly featured B-list or below characters, there were solid stakes. You knew bad things could happen to these characters. Like Injustice, for example. Right. But that's slightly different. But you knew that Vic Sage, the question, was dying of lung cancer. And guess what? He died. And because he is not Batman, there was a stake there. Ralph Dibney, as much as I love Ralph Dibney, and someday we are going to do a Batman Elongated Man team-up episode, Ralph could die because he He's not an A-list character. And here, also, especially because you had Endgame running concurrently with the back half of this, which you knew took place after, you sort of knew where things were going to wind up. It was the question of how. I'll tell you this, as somebody who read Snyder's original Bat title without basically reading anything else, It was really confusing when Julia Pennyworth just popped up in that book. And why are they suddenly living in those mysterious 13th floors of the Court of Owls? That that wasn't explained. And you couldn't because you needed to maintain the mystery of Eternal at that point. But again, the thing with 52 is the majority of the characters who were central to 52 weren't popping up anywhere else. So you didn't know what their fates were. And it's why... The next of those weeklies, Countdown, was such a goddamn disaster. (laughs) Because that was this constant moving target change of what we're doing, what we're not. And it also tried to be the spine of the present DC universe with all of these other books moving in and out of it. So nowhere was it telling a whole story. And it also... 
and I'm not sure if this was, there are pieces that have been written with interviews with the creators of that, but I don't know if they were working off of a different earlier draft of what final crisis number one was going to be so that the, the final issue of countdown not lining up at all with final crisis number one was the fault of Morrison for changing things or these writers for not getting it 100% or just bad editorial, which mm-hmm. <laughs> Trinity went the opposite direction of countdown, which tried countdown, tried to be the spine of the entire DC universe. Trinity was completely removed from everything that was going on in the mainstream DC universe. So a lot of people were just like, why does this matter? And then we, we laid off the weeklies. Eventually we got eternal and future's end, which we'll have to cover that. Eventually that was what brought Batman beyond into the DCU. In the long run, weekly series are an interesting concept that work better when they're in smaller chunks. Yes, like Detective. Yeah. A 12-issue arc, you can maintain that pace. You may take for three months. A year is a lot of time, and a lot can happen in a year with creators. Folks get tired, uh, editorial priorities change, rewrites, chaos. You're just asking for chaos. And and let's also be honest, with the solicitation cycle on comics, by the third month, you're just... By the solicitation of the end of that series, you're already pretty much releasing issue, the the beginning. So editorial doesn't have time for the, the fear of sales numbers to set in. A year-long story can get, oh, this isn't selling well. And then you start getting suits involved saying, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And there goes creative right out the window when dollar signs aren't working right. Every character should be asking, where's Poochie? But I think we've said everything we need to say at this point about Batman Eternal. Yes. Thank you for indulging me. It was not as good as I remembered. That's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Needed to be done. We needed to cover it eventually one way or the other. That's it for this week. Next week, we're back to our regularly scheduled programming with an episode featuring three stories of Jason Todd to celebrate the 40th anniversary of his first appearance. And they'll all have crowbars. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grove, June, conduit of outdated joke names. Jen, come on. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley. Go Utes! Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus. Bye, two bucks. Can't wait to have you back on, bud. Tim Rooney and Giorgio Sereggioli for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics. And shows available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. 
And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>